I want to talk this morning about something that we need so completely in our lives. And yet, as we spend time in concentrated prayer with the Lord, or even as we carry on a conversation with Him throughout the day, do you do that? Carry on a little conversation with Him throughout the day? The Bible refers to this as carrying on the spirit of prayer. Constantly being in the attitude of being in the presence of God. As we do that, as we spend time in concentrated prayer, as we talk to Him throughout the day, uh, very often we don't request this one thing of the Lord. Usually when we pray, we're quick to kind of focus on our needs and on the situations that are concerning to us, and we let our requests be made known to God so He can work. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's a biblical statement. We're called to do that. But we also need to remember that as we approach the Lord, as we come into His presence in prayer, that we are supposed to do that with absolute reverence and respect for who He is and who we are. As we come into worship each week, we are supposed to come in with reverence. That doesn't mean we have to walk in solemnly like monks and not make a noise, okay? But, but it also means we're not supposed to be flippant and casual and, and kind of uh, earthy. We're supposed to come into this place with a reverence for the Lord because we're in His presence. And as we pray, that means that we don't just come to Him with our list and say, all right, Lord, here it is. I got a lot of things I got to get off my chest today. It starts with being humbling, uh, with, with humbling ourselves, with falling on our faces metaphorically and physically and saying, Lord, I'm coming into Your awesome presence and I am broken by my impurity. I, I, am, I am humbled by the fact of my sin, and I need to repent of it, and I need to get clean with you, because I know you offer forgiveness. And as we do that, we immediately feel the sufficiency of His grace and mercy. And as we feel the sufficiency of His grace and mercy, we then are are full of gratitude. We're full of praise for His love and His forgiveness. If you're struggling this morning to feel gratitude to God, I would say to you that you haven't confessed enough. If you're struggling with praising God and rejoicing in God, it's probably because there's still too much self there that's holding you back. And we need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. Search me and know me. Cleanse me out. Clean me out. And once we feel the mercy and forgiveness of God, which is immediate, there's not a delay there. The Lord doesn't say, well, get back to me in a week. Or, or a couple weeks from now, I'll think about it. I gotta ponder this. I don't know. I just, I'm not, I'm not real clear about it right now. When we repent, it says he forgives. And he doesn't just say it's okay. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's clean. When we experience that, oh, our hearts are so full of gratitude and praise. And then we realize again how great it is to trust the Lord and we start to yield ourselves to him. Now, it's when we go through that whole process, when our hearts are clean and pure, and when self is clarified and our, and, and, our, and our hearts are purified in our desires, it's at that point we present our requests to Him, knowing that His plans are far better than ours. His plans are so much better than, than what we can ask or think. The Bible says that they far exceed what we could possibly ask or think. And what's amazing is, is that He's willing to continue to pour out blessing upon us when we trust in Him. God is not stingy this morning. 
He's not reticent to help us. He, he, he doesn't say, I'll give you a little bit and you can earn your way. He lavishes us with His blessing when we trust Him and when we submit ourselves to His will. So, so with prayer, our intention is key. We're never to be self-indulgent. We're to be emptied of self and full of the Spirit. Now, all that being said, imagine tonight as you laid down in bed that the Lord appeared to you. I know it's hard to imagine, but just go with me. And the Lord appeared to you and He said to you, I will give you the opportunity to have any one thing that you want. What would you choose? What would be your reaction to that? Now, some people might choose good health because they're having physical or emotional difficulty and and they really want to be restored. Other people might ask for money because they're in a financial crisis or because they want to help other people or maybe they're just greedy and want to go shopping. I I don't know. Some people might say, well, Lord, restore and reconcile and make relationships stronger in my life. Maybe your marriage is struggling or you're uh, broken and estranged from your children or they're not uh, following the correct way. Or maybe there's a family member that you're not right with and, and it's certainly important and necessary to say, Lord, heal that relationship. Or, or maybe you'd even go broader than that. Maybe you say, the one thing I'd want from the Lord is justice in the world or, or political change or, or whatever Miss America contestant wants. I want world peace. It would be so wonderful if we just had world peace, Lord. What would it be? What would you choose if the Lord gave you that option? Not with time to analyze it for days. Not, Lord, I need six days and then I'll come back to you and I'll, I'll have it set. But just in that split second, ask what you want and I'll give it to you. What would your first inclination be? Your, your gut reaction. What's in your heart? What, what, what you really desire? And there's almost no question that the foremost desire of our heart and mind would be to want something for ourselves. It would be rare not only to want something that was not for ourselves, but it would be rare to want something that was deeply pleasing to the Lord. Now Solomon gets this opportunity, and it's in our text of the morning, so let's take our Bibles if you haven't already and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. David has just died. Solomon has been anointed as king and put on the throne. And the Spirit of God gives us some very, very important and specific details about the start of his reign. Look at it if you're there. Let's read verses 1 to 6. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom. And the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's households. He's covering all his bases here. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him, verse 3, went to the high place which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar with Bezalel, the son of Earl, the son of Ur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and all the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand 
burnt offerings upon it. Now, one of the fascinating things, and we've said this before as we study Scripture, is the value of details. Some of these details may seem unimportant. Some of them we may not even relate to. Why is the bronze altar? What does it matter, Kiriath-Jerim and Gibeon and her and, and all that stuff. What, what does that mean? Just get to the bottom line. But as we study the scripture, those details, which may seem a little bit insignificant at first glance, tell us a lot about how the Lord works. So I want to just walk through this by verse and show what the details are. We read, first of all, that Solomon is established securely as the king. And if you go back just to the left side of the page, chapter 29, verse 23, you see that all Israel obeyed him. Now that's no small deal for someone that's just succeeded the great King David. He is now out of the shadow of his father. The people are responsive. They're willing to follow Solomon. His leadership is being respected and recognized. And he doesn't have that obstacle in the way. And that's a big obstacle. Then we see second that the Lord was with him. I don't think there is any greater sentence that can be said about a believer other than they're saved than that the Lord is with us. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be marked at the end of it where people say the Lord was with him. I want our church to be marked by people saying when they look at us, saved or unsaved, the Lord's with that church. Not not as a matter of pride, not as a matter of look at us, but just that's where we're in the center of God's will. That God is near us, He's helping us, He's watching over us, and He's providing for us. So we've got the fact that His kingdom is established, that the Lord's with Him, and then see third, that God was exalting Him greatly. So not only was the Lord's presence with Solomon, not only was His hand on Solomon, but the Lord was blessing him in unique ways that paralleled how he had blessed David. And the importance of that can't be overstated. At the start of Solomon's reign, he has the three greatest spiritual advantages that a person can have. He has a forgiven, reconciled life. He has the presence of God, and he has the favor of God. And verse 1 says that God exalted him greatly. But here's the key to that sentence, because that's not what we think. As we studied two weeks ago in in the study of sacrifice, this has nothing to do with Solomon being exalted by others. Hear me now. When, When it says God exalted him greatly, that doesn't mean, and Solomon was really popular and really well known, and all the covers of the magazines, and everybody said, look at that guy. He is the baddest guy on the planet. He is awesome. Everybody loves him. That's not what this is about. And it's not about Solomon reveling in his power and taking pride in his position and saying, I'm awesome, look at me. It's natural to think of it that way because when we think of the word exalted, we think of being raised up and noticed and put in a position of power and authority and popularity. But the exalting that God has has nothing to do with man's approval and everything to do with his approval. If you want to be exalted by God greatly, then don't expect anybody to notice you because that's not what it's about. If you want to be exalted by God greatly, 
it will mean that people see the Lord's hand and the Lord's presence and the Lord's favor. And the result of that will be that they will praise the Lord. People should not notice us. Not because we're demure and because we're trying to be humble. People shouldn't notice us because they should see the Lord in our lives. I don't want anybody to see me this morning. I want you to see the Lord. I want you to hear from the Lord. I'm just getting in the way. I'm just praying that, that I don't stumble and, and, and hinder something that the Spirit wants to say to us. They should see the Lord. That means that you and I should never, ever be jealous or resentful of what other people have. Whether it's possessions or popularity or power, none of that matters in eternity. If you're worried about being popular and well-known and having a bunch of friends and getting the world's acclaim, just look how fast celebrities now are fading. Look how quickly somebody's star rises up and then their star goes down. And that will tell you all you need to know about the world's approval. If you're concerned about making money and and being wealthy, just look what's happened to the economy the last couple years. You have no control over it. If you're worried about accumulating possessions, just look at the number of yard sales every weekend and know that gaining possessions is just going to mean that you're going to have a yard sale soon. None of it matters. When I die, nobody's going to say, wow, he's so popular. I'm dead. Nobody's going to say, well, look at, look at his bank book. He stuffed all that money in his casket. That's fine. It's just going to be buried. Somebody's going to dig up the money. None of it matters for eternity. But when God is exalted in our life without people noting us, noticing us at all, that's when we will go to Him and praise Him and say, I'm glad that they see you and not me. How many know this morning that that should be the goal of everything in our lives? That people would see the Lord and not us. Now Solomon understood this. He understood the importance of God's presence and His favor. We know that, look back at the text in verse 3, because of another detail that the Spirit gives us. The fact that he went to the high place in Gibeon. If you guys could put up the pictures for me. Gibeon was a city about five miles northwest of Jerusalem. And you can see this is the ancient ruins. This is the new city that's all around it. But this is the ancient ruins of the old city of Gibeon. Again, you see the hills. This is very indicative of Israel. If you go to the next slide, I'll give you one more little piece of Gibeon. This is the well that, or the cistern that they had in the city. And you can see these people here, how big this was. There were stairs that went way down. And this is how you would get your water. So Gibeon was a city that was known. It was an important city. Um, and there was a lot of past history with it. Thank you. It's famous in Scripture from Joshua 10 because it's the place where when Joshua was in battle, where God, it seemed, made the sun stand still. You remember that story from Joshua 10? And this was the third city that was captured as Israel took the promised land. First was Jericho, then Ai. The third city was Gibeon. So this was a significant city in terms of Israel's history as being the place where Joshua had won the battle. But, but the issue here and the reason in this text 
why it's important was not because of its past history, but because of the present presence of the Lord. If you look back at verse 3, you see that Solomon went there with all the people, and there were three significant reasons why he went. The first one was that the tent of meeting was there. The tabernacle was the literal place where God's presence descended to be among the people. And the tent of meeting was called that because God came down in the wilderness and met with Moses. They literally saw the manifest presence of God descend as a cloud into the tent of meeting. So in Gibeon, the tent of meeting was there. The second thing we see is that the Ark of the Covenant was there. David had brought it up to Gibeon, and we know that the Ark was a symbol of the deliverance and salvation of God, and it was also a symbol of God's presence and God's leading. So we've got the tent of meeting with the Ark of Covenant, and then third we see, uh, several verses say this, that the bronze altar was there. Now we may not be as familiar with its purpose and its symbolism, but the Spirit specifically calls attention to it because it offers an amazing picture of how God works. The bronze altar was situated right inside the courtyard at the entrance of the tabernacle, and it was on a raised piece of earth. It was a foreshadowing of Christ because it was the place of sacrifice. And it it was an advanced picture of how Christ, our sacrifice, would be raised up on a hill, Golgotha, and that he would be sacrificed for our sins. The altar was overlaid with bronze. Bronze is usually the symbol of judgment in sin in the Bible. And on this altar, animal sacrifices were burned to show that the first step to a sinful man approaching a holy God was to be cleansed by the blood of an innocent lamb. And here's what happened on the bronze altar. As the person brought the spotless male lamb for sacrifice, the priest would lay it on the altar, and the person bringing the sacrifice would have to put his hand on the head of the lamb as the priest killed it. The reason that happened was because it identified the person with the sacrifice. And the implication was, as you put your hand on the head of the lamb, that your sin and guilt was transferred to the animal, which then was killed. Its blood was taken. It was sprinkled on the veil covering the Holy of Holies. And that was an atonement or a covering for your sin. So everything that's here, this trifecta of great things that God has brought, the tent of meaning and the Ark of Covenant and the bronze altar, they're all at Gibeon, and they all point to Jesus Christ. The presence of God coming down to be with us, the mercy and sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God who was given for our forgiveness, the sacrifice of His innocent blood, which was poured out as a payment for our sin and our identification with Him. Everything here points ahead to what Christ is going to do. And it says in verse 5, very important, that Solomon and the people, as they realized this, they sought it out. This was a statement of their understanding of what God has done and their desire for His mercy and His blessing and His presence among them. Now, that's important because even though Solomon already had the presence of God with him, he intentionally chose to draw near to the place where he knew God's presence was. He didn't assume. He didn't say, well, I'm already covered. You guys need it. You guys need to go near God. But I've already got him. 
Never assume in your walk that, that everything's just wonderful and that you don't have to move forward. The Christian life is all about maturing and progressing every single day. I don't want to look tomorrow like I did today. And I don't want to look Tuesday like I did on Monday. Move forward, progress, mature, advance, and draw near to the presence of God. Now, there are a couple of spiritual principles there. One is that we should never take the indwelling of God's Spirit lightly or for granted. The presence of God fills us. Let me say that again. The presence of God fills us. How awed are we by that this morning? How much does the reality of that completely dictate how you think, how you talk, how you act, and what you prioritize? Do we live as people that are not only forgiven by God and given transformed lives and given a new nature, but do we also live as people who have the presence of God indwelling us? This week, live as a person who has the presence of God indwelling you. That'll change everything. It'll change everything. It'll change your thoughts, your priorities, your reactions, your conversation, your words to your wife and kids. It'll change everything. How you respond at work, how you handle criticism, how you deal with fear. All of it will change because you'll say the presence of God resides in me and I'm living as a child of God that's filled with the nature of the Holy Spirit. Never take that for granted. Second, we should always highly value every opportunity to draw near to the Lord. Whether it's the fellowship of prayer or time studying His Word or time with the body of Christ. Listen, I'm so encouraged coming back today that you're not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together because it's summer. We don't, we don't have an out we are supposed to draw near to the presence of the Lord and we have opportunity. And what a tremendous privilege this morning to come near to Him knowing that He will always draw near to us when we draw near to Him. He's never lacking. So it shouldn't just be a little mark on our daily schedule. I'll try to fit it in today because i got a lot to do. It's the constant and pervasive joy of abiding with Him. Now Solomon starts with that priority. And I don't want you to miss it in the text because it's the impetus for what happens next. Notice as we read verse 7, that that very night, the night they get to Gibeon, and they're near the tent of meeting, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the bronze altar, that night as Solomon goes to bed, this is what happens. Look at verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I will give you. Pause. Three seconds as he gulps and is stunned. Solomon says to God, You've dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made the king in his pl- me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. 
wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor. He didn't ask for that. Such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. The first thing we need to establish and be very clear about is that submitting yourself to the Lord does not always lead to Him giving you whatever you want. There is a theology out there that says, you just ask the Lord for anything outlandish and He'll give it to you. That's wrong. There's nowhere in Scripture that supports that viewpoint. And it's not only misguided, but it's self-centered and it's not supported by the Word of God. But in this instance, in this particular account, the Lord makes this offer to Solomon, both out of his loving kindness and as a test and evaluation of his heart. He was leading God's people. It was God's nation. It was always God's nation. God always wanted to be their God and their leader. And there were times when they did that and times when they ignored that. And Solomon is at a place where he not only has a huge legacy to to fulfill uh, as a king and as a warrior and as a respected leader, but he has an even bigger legacy to fulfill as a man of God. So the legitimate question at the start of his reign, because he's king number three, king number one was Saul, king number two was David, he's number three. The big question I think that was on people's minds was, is he going to be a Saul or a David? Is he going to be self-centered, arrogant, not seeking the Lord, off track, misguided, out of fellowship with God? Or is he going to be a man after God's own heart? Here's the test. Here's what's going to show who Solomon really, really is. So the Lord comes to him and says, what do you want? I'll give you any one thing. You tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. (laughs) It boggles the mind, doesn't it? The options at this point are are endless. And in verse 11, God even details some of the things that he could have asked for. Riches and wealth and honor and the the lives of those that opposed him or long life for himself. But Solomon doesn't ask for any of those. In fact, before he asks for anything, he shows wisdom and spiritual maturity in what he says first. And I want you to notice this in the text. The first thing he says is to focus on God's past help and past blessing, which is such an important perspective. But I want you to notice in the text that he wasn't talking about how God had helped him in the past and how God had blessed him in the past. He talks about how God blessed his father, David. And you say, well, of course, God blessed David immensely. But what's interesting is that Solomon had seen and experienced a lot of unhappiness surrounding his family. It had not been smooth since Solomon was born. In fact, if you go back to the end of 1 Kings, you see that it was anything but. His father had committed a very public, immoral act with a woman named Bathsheba, who was not his wife. And that was magnified for Solomon by the fact that she was his mother. She was Solomon's mother. So he always had that stigma attached to him because it was a very public sin, that this was David and Bathsheba's son. And then there was the awful defilement of his half-sister Tamar by his half-brother Amnon, and the violent revenge that his other half-brother 
Absalom took out on Abnam by murdering him. And that led to Absalom's revolt against David and his attempt to overthrow his kingdom, at which point David and his family, including Solomon, had to flee Jerusalem and run away from Absalom's coup d'etat. And then there was a threat on their lives. And then Absalom's killed and David goes into mourning. If that wasn't enough, then there was another revolt against David by an outside country. And there was a battle that took place. And David followed that up with his second public sin, which was a census, which God disciplined by sending a pestilence on the people, and 70,000 people died. It's a mess. And that doesn't even include the fact that his father was so sad that God had not allowed him to build the temple, but had given the responsibility to Solomon. So no pressure there, no tension in the family there, that Solomon's now the one that's going to build the temple that David longed all his life to build. This was not clean. This was not just, oh, it's wonderful, and Solomon's king now, and of course God's given favor, and Lord, it's been so awesome. There, there would, it would not be surprising that, that Solomon might be a little bit jaded at this point. Or a little bit hesitant to really commit himself to the Lord. But notice in the text that he does just the opposite. He praises God for one of the most important and reassuring attributes of God. Look at it. It's in the middle of verse 8. He praises God for his loving kindness. Loving kindness is an incredible word in the Hebrew language. It's the word chesed. And the word chesed means an abundance of loyal, faithful love. God, Solomon says, I praise you for the abundance of your loyal, faithful love. How many think this morning that we deserve such a thing from the Lord? How how many think that, that God owes us his loyal, faithful love in abundance. And yet over and over, he pours it out on us. His love is kind and merciful and faithful and loving and loyal. And Solomon knew that. Even in the midst of all the turmoil around his father, he saw that David had the heart for God. The one the Bible says This is the example. This is what you're supposed to go after. His heart was inclined to the Lord. And because his heart was inclined to the Lord, look at the text. It says the Lord dealt with him with great loving kindness. In other words, God went over and above what was already fabulous and astounding. His incredible abundance of loyal, faithful love. God took it to the next step and said, I'm going to give you that in great I'm going to go over what I'm already doing, which is so spectacular that it should drop you to your knees. I'm going to go beyond that, and I'm going to bless you abundantly beyond that. But it didn't stop there in his perspective. He also says to the Lord, you also keep your promises. And this time it's not about David, it's about him. He says, you've fulfilled your word. You've made me king. If you would, uh, put up the map just for a second, guys, please. And I'm going to show you just how much God was blessing Solomon. This was, Saul's, this was Saul's kingdom right here in the brown. This was David's kingdom in the blue. This is Solomon's kingdom, including the green. 
God had already blessed David so immeasurably. Now he says to Solomon, you're going to have more. You're going to go beyond. And Solomon says, I know. You've kept your promise. You've made me king. You've fulfilled everything that you said you were going to do. You've gone far beyond. Now, Lord, I need wisdom. And it's clear from the text that the Lord was very, very pleased by that request because it's the second greatest request that we can make of the Lord. The first greatest request is what the tax collector says in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The recognition of our own spiritual inadequacy our complete failure because of sin, coupled with our understanding of the fact that God offers His love and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, asking Him to save us, asking Him to cover our sins, is the greatest request that we can make of God. And no matter how bad your past is this morning, no matter what you have done, no matter how deep your sin is, no matter how far you are away from God, if you come to Him this morning with a humble, repentant heart and you trust in Jesus Christ to save you, He is absolutely, immediately willing to forgive you. Right now, I don't care how far gone you are in terms of your sin. If you say, God, I repent of it, I turn from it, save me, God will do it right now. That's how great His mercy is. That's why the greatest thing we can ask the Lord is, Lord, be merciful to me. Save me. Forgive me. And God is willing. So you say, all right, well, that makes sense. Why would Solomon's request for wisdom be next in line? Well, we all need wisdom. Especially in this glut of information, subjectivism, relativism, avoidance of truth, kind of selfish culture that we live in. I need wisdom this morning. You need wisdom this morning. But it goes far beyond just trying to decipher what's right and what's wrong. This request for wisdom pleased the Lord because it was an acknowledgement by Solomon who had everything that he knew nothing, that he wasn't in control, and that he didn't know what to do. This is the most powerful man in the world. He has everything at his disposal, and that has to mess with your head. He has servants, he has sycophants, he has anything he wants. All he has to do is say, the king wants this, and somebody comes running with it. Nothing is prevented. He has a great legacy, he has a great family, he has people who love and respect him. He even has the God of the universe saying, I'll give you what you want, and I'll bless you. But Solomon doesn't take it for granted, and he doesn't leverage it to his advantage. He says, there is nothing more important at this point than that I humble myself before God. I have it all, and none of it matters unless I'm right with the Lord. I don't care what you have this morning, what you've achieved, what your name is, how well-known you are, how much money you have. It matters nothing unless you are right with the Lord. And we are called to humble ourselves and yield ourselves to the Lord, and the best thing we can say is, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me insight on what I'm supposed to do. You and I need that this morning. How many times during each day do we realize our inability and our lack of wisdom? 
You know, I'm not much for alliteration when I preach or acrostics or anything like that. Just it's just not it's not how the Lord leads me. But I was mowing the lawn yesterday. It was hot. I lost two and a half pounds mowing. I, I weighed myself, which was exciting. I may mow again today, just I don't need to, but but I was mowing the lawn and I was I was praying and I was asking the Lord for wisdom about this text. And almost immediately, I'm not being mystical here, almost immediately he impressed my mind with six words. And they encompass the areas in which we need wisdom, and not at all coincidentally, they started with the letters of wisdom. So I yielded myself to the Lord and said, all right, that's what we're going to study at the end of our study this morning. So I want to encourage you and maybe write these down, six areas in which we need wisdom, and we'll close with this. The number one area we need wisdom is in times of worry. Fear can consume us. It can overwhelm us and it alters our perspective. It's usually either driven by a misunderstanding of truth or an assumption that the worst will happen. The Bible talks about how we deal with worry and it's in those times when we're worried that we need to go to the God of truth who sees all things in the present who already knows everything that's going to happen and who is sovereign over all things. And he promises to provide for us and meet uh, our needs and care for us and watch over us like a father watches over children. So when we are stuck in worry, we need to go to the God of truth and ask him for wisdom. The answer to fear is not finding clever alternatives or finding human solutions. Philippians 4 says it's to do what what Solomon did to go into the presence of the Lord and ask for wisdom. And as you ask for wisdom, God will give you peace. So we need to ask for wisdom in the area of worry. Second, we need to ask for wisdom in times of insecurity. Insecurity is different from fear because it isn't directed toward outward difficulties. It's directed toward inward dissatisfaction. Insecurity is driven as much by our own lack of confidence and contentment in the Lord, listen now, it's driven as much by our own lack of confidence and contentment in the Lord as it is by the criticism and callousness of others. So we need Him to show us the ways in which we are not depending on Him and seeing our worth in Him. That is a focus away from God's presence. It's a focus away from Christ's sacrifice and a a focus away from the Spirit's filling because we're thinking about ourselves. So we need wisdom in times of insecurity because we need God to get our hearts right. That leads to the third thing. We need wisdom about the influence of self. We think we know ourselves, but we ignore a lot, don't we? We're dishonest about some things about ourselves. And we need profound, and I would say even painful insight into how controlling our self-will is and how much our our desires are self-centered because both of those things damage us. One of the best prayers we can pray is what David prays in Psalm 139 when he says, search me and know my heart and see if there is any hurtful way in me. In other words, examine me and give me wisdom about myself. Uncover what is impure and cleanse it because it's preventing me from being in your presence. So, Lord, I need you to scrape out my heart. 
Now, I don't know about you, but living in self-denial is too easy. So we need to be honest with the Lord. And we need Him to give us wisdom about ourselves. Number four, we need wisdom in times of doubt. When our faith wavers and the enemy is inciting doubt about God's word and about God's promises and about God's sufficiency, we need wisdom from on high to keep us steadfast in our confidence. Faith is always based on truth. So one of the greatest attacks that the enemy will push on us is to undermine truth and to weaken our faith. So we need to say to the Lord, Lord, I need increased wisdom. I need a greater hunger for your word. I need the Holy Spirit to teach me and guide me. And I need to recognize and trust in what is right. Number five, I hope I'm spelling the word right. We need wisdom in times of opposition. We need wisdom in times of opposition. The enemy is an angel of light. He lies, he accuses, he twists scripture to create doubt and to encourage self-reliance. And because he is sneaky and unfair, we need discernment, we need wisdom to recognize when he's coming in disguise and to recognize when it's actually the Spirit of God at work. Now, the more we mature in our faith, the more we're able to understand that. But even as older Christians, even as mature Christians, the devil then adapts his strategy to match our strength. But we do know that he will never, ever encourage complete trust in the Lord. We need wisdom to know how to deal with people who criticize and gossip and lie about our character and damage our reputation and create disunity in the body. Not only how to offset them, which is our first inclination, but also how to love them and pray for them and forgive them. In times of opposition, we need wisdom. Not just, what should I do so I can get back at them? We need wisdom to be gentle in our spirit and humble before the Lord. Number six, and I'm done. We need wisdom to be able to manage life. This one's so broad. From our marriages, to parenting our kids, to serving in ministry, to finances, to job situations, to decisions, whatever. You and I need a constant inflow of wisdom from God and insight and leading from Him about what's best and what is most pleasing to Him. The Bible says, to to whom much is given, much is required. And you and I have been given a lot. So as we fulfill that requirement, we need a lot of wisdom from the Lord. Every day, every moment, every second, for every decision, what could be better to say to the Lord than you have shown your loving kindness to me, the abundance of loyal, faithful love, and you have always kept your promises. So Lord, I need wisdom. I need knowledge. I need understanding because I don't know what to do. Is there anybody this morning that thinks God won't answer that prayer? God says you've asked for the right thing. You've humbled yourself and you've exalted me. I'll give you what you asked. Let's close our eyes together. And just reflect on God's word for a moment. You've listened so well. Thank you. 
And I pray the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning. I have felt so strongly over the last few days as I've been traveling and then coming back to ministry, looking toward the future, praying about how God would lead us. I felt such a strong need for wisdom. And I pray this morning that as the Lord speaks to you and convicts your heart and challenges you, that if that is something that you need, and I would assume that all of us do, that right now you would ask Him, Lord, I need wisdom. But that starts with humbling ourselves. That starts with being broken before the Lord and confessing our sin. Putting self aside because God's not going to give wisdom to somebody who's arrogant. But just in the quietness of the moment, we're not going to have people forward. We're not going to do an invitation. This is just between you and the Lord right now. Where does your heart need to be? What do you need in terms of wisdom from the Lord? He will give it in abundance when a heart is right. Our Lord, we thank you this morning for your loving kindness. We thank you that you're a faithful, merciful, dependable, loving God. That we don't for a second deserve to know, let alone be filled with your nature, let alone be called your children. Lord, I need wisdom this morning for my life, for my family, for our church. I would suspect that each person in this room, Lord, needs wisdom this morning in some measure. You are more than willing, you've proven it time again, to give us insight and knowledge and understanding You've already given it that in abundance through your word. But Lord, we ask this morning for an extra measure of wisdom from you. Only from you. Not from the world, not from the enemy, not from anybody else. Your wisdom. That we would walk in the way that you would have us to walk. That we would be pleasing to you. That there would be nothing out of line with who we are called to be as believers in Jesus Christ and as disciples. I pray you would work in a powerful way in our midst. I pray you would lead us and direct our paths so clearly. And then as you do, we would constantly remain humbled and yielded to you, trusting you without question. Lord, we praise you for what you're going to do in our lives. Lord, this morning I pray that you would do a new work in lives where people have been struggling and distant from you and following after the world's wisdom. Lord, that you would impart wisdom upon their hearts this morning so they would understand how to please you. We thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. We thank you that you hear our prayers, Lord, and you respond. We bring you all the praise and all the glory for you're the only one that deserves it. We pray in Jesus' name.